All right, guys, good morning. Um, we're going to talk about lessons learned uh, with the spray drones. Uh, first of all, I want to thank the American Sugarcane League uh, for purchasing me uh, a drone. Uh, it, it's been a, a great little tool. Uh, lesson one, compliance. And this really uh, affects you depending on what size drone you have. Drones that are less than 55 pounds uh, go under the uh, federal code of part 107 uh, with the FAA. Um, you got to get a special license. That is the license that I received. Uh, pretty tough to get uh, when you're dispensing uh, ag chemicals from, a, from an aircraft. You also have to apply for exemptions, this part 137. And I know uh, the gentleman with Billy yesterday talked about, you know, that's part of the service they provide. Uh, it used to be a very complex thing and took months and months and months to get. Uh, the FAA has gotten more efficient with it, but uh, I think that's a great service and one that I would definitely consider. The last thing that uh, I really want to talk about is the pesticide application license. Um, you know, to, to spray with a drone, you have to have a commercial uh, license from the Department of Ag and Forestry. That's a whole other uh, test that you have to take. Uh, to get that so uh, and I, I had one girl said no we don't have to get it on the form I called the guy at the Department of Ag and Forestry before this talk and he said absolutely if you're gonna spray with a drone you have to have the certification from Department of Ag with your pesticide card drones that are uh, greater than 55 pounds which are gonna be the ones that most producers look at um, that they they fall into a whole nother class of regulation that's a whole lot closer to like an ag tractor or, or a, a, a helicopter. Um, so different rules. You have to apply for that exemption, that 44807 exemption. Again, uh, working with uh, the, the guy selling these aircrafts uh, is a big uh, help. And again, you still have to have that aerial applicator's license from the Department of Ag and Forestry if you're going to use this as a, a method of uh, applying any pesticides um you know going through graduate school wasn't the easiest thing but whenever i started studying for the part 107 exam it got real and uh the, the lesson that I, I uh that i learned is you're not really very far from getting assessed the license from the stuff you have to learn you have to know what kind of airspace that you're flying in. you're supposed to be able to look at sectional maps and know you're supposed to be able to know uh, what the weather is at a given time uh, on, on this test. It's not, oh, can you just fly this drone? Now, one of the things uh, that I would definitely do is, if you have one, is you download this app. It's a free app. It's before you fly. Um, it tells you what kind of airspace you're in. Um, and, and believe you me, uh, with the uh, FAA, you don't want to be flying in the wrong airspace. Um, the picture where it's yellow, that was taken uh, by the Shriver uh, Airport, and, and you say, oh, well, you buy an airport. One of the things that I learned in this whole process, Louisiana has more flights than any other state. And I'm going, man, that doesn't make any sense. But when you think about oil field, we have a lot of helicopters flying, so there's a lot of cautious areas. Uh, but before I ever put that aircraft up, I look at it. The other thing you got to look at is TFRs, temporary flight restrictions. 
So I remember where I was for 9-11, we were selecting seedlings in St. Gabriel, and the F-15 jets just started flying over. Whenever there's any kind of uh, emergency, even if it's not that severe of a, an emergency, they can say, oh, you, you cannot fly your aircraft. And this is an example uh, at the bottom uh, from Palm Beach County in Florida, saying so, you know, that, that you cannot fly drones from this certain day to, to this certain day. And if, if you, you violate that, that it's, a, it's a federal violation. Uh, from what I'm being told. So, so one of the things we really wanted to look at is, is what are the patterns of the, these aircrafts? You know, it's real easy to, if you got a tractor uh, sprayer, mounted sprayer, to, to figure out what your spray pattern is. But, um, you know, we, we knew there was going to be some prop wash. So this is Dr. Randy Price. Uh, he's our ag engineer, worked with him, brilliant fella. He developed a me method. He, he runs out a cotton string. You fly that aircraft over that cotton spring. It has a die in the tank. Uh, he's got a laser in this little box where this camera is. Uh, and after you fly, he sucks it in. That, that laser illuminates that fluorescent dye. He records it with a GoPro camera. And then he can look at how much variation that you have in that spray pattern. That's what he uses for, for commercial uh, uh, ag cats and uh, ag tractors and helicopters. That's how he, he looks at the spray pattern to make sure that we're doing a good job. So we did a, a lot of work with him. Um, one of the things we learned that, that there's a great potential for uh, spray dr uh, drift and nozzle selection makes a difference. Uh, whenever I purchased my DJI uh, drone, it came with these XR11001 uh, nozzles. You see, if you look at the T-Jet manual, it's a fine droplet uh, at 40 PSI. We actually went to that AIXR 11002. So if you look at the XR on this side versus the AIXR, at 40 pounds of pressure with the, the XR, you, you still have a fine droplet versus a, a, a coarse uh, with the AIXR. So that makes a difference. DJI has come out with the T-40. It's a 10-gallon aircraft. Um, Randy Price had a, a chance to evaluate this. Instead of having nozzles, they have discs uh, that, that they use to disperse the, the, the uh, spray. He said it by far had a great spray pattern. He said, oh, it was impressive. But they have a, a fine uh, droplet disc and a coarse droplet disc. And he said the thing what was concerning is even with the coarse droplet disc, there were a lot of fine particles that could potentially move off target. Um, that cotton didn't do a whole lot for me, so I, what I did is I set up a uh, 4x6 in St. Gabriel, uh, stapled some paper and put some dye in the tank to see what kind of pattern I had. I, I really wanted to, to picture what we had. Uh, I'm not sure how well it shows up, but this is the pattern that, that I liked after looking at a bunch of nozzles and a bunch of heights and, and such. And I would suggest when you get a, a drone, you do this. One of the things I learned last week at the, the weed science meeting, they had a talk out of a guy from uh, the north who, who sold surfactants. And he said, depending on what surfactant he used, it changed that spray pattern of, of that, that material. Uh, and, and I think that's a very big thing. You're going to have to test with the compound that, that you're using and, and put some dye in the tank. And, and I think this is a, a great way to do that. Uh, the spray height affects your spray width. Um, some of the work we did at Iberia, uh, we put glyphosate in the, in the uh, tank. We flew it at five feet. 
Uh, and then we flew a single pass at 10 feet. And then we let it die, and we came back to see how much area was killed. When we were uh, at the five-foot height, we had a nine-foot spray width. Uh, at 10 foot, we got about a 12 foot. So uh, that makes a difference. There is a potential for spray drift. I don't know how well it's showing up. Not great from what I can see here. But we were sprayed in a five-mile-an-hour wind on a fallow field, and I had some non-GMO soybeans just to my left. And I came within about 10 feet of damaging those beans. I blew it almost 100 feet off target at 10 feet high. So you have to pay attention. It's not a foolproof uh, system. Let's talk about this aircraft operations. Uh, we're going to cover a, a number of different topics. But uh, manual versus autonomous operation. You can fly these things manually. And uh, I don't see Charlie Lever in, in the room. Uh, but we tried to, to dress up some ends manually, and I, I can fly a drone, but I can tell you what, I can't fly it in a straight line like you do when, when you, you're trying to operate this autonomously. So this is just a, a picture, uh, a video showing some operations at Diabera Station. Uh, you know, you, you set your boundaries, you tell it to go, and like the uh, gentleman said from Helio, you press play, and it does the rest after you have your boundaries. Field obstacles. Um, Chris Patu, Mark Patu's son, came to me and he said, Al, I want to see if this thing will fly under the high power lines. And I'm, I was a bit nervous, you know. When the league gave me the money to buy this thing, the last thing I wanted to do was to crash it. So we went into one of his uh, eight-acre fields. Uh, we mapped the corners. I came in and then marked out the obstacle where that high line, where the poles were, and we flew it. And it did beautiful. It, it went under the high lines. It went up to the marked area, went around, had no issues. Now, I got to tell on myself, um, they, they, uh, Dr. Kenneth said, uh, Al, uh, not Dr. Kenneth, Dr. Kimbing said, uh, Audubon wants to do a little bit of ripening work. We have the show and tell at St. Gabriel where we have all the varieties lined up. We need to put some ripener on it to do some work. No problem. Well, Kenneth and Braden Blanchard and myself were talking. I mapped the corners, put my aircraft up to fly, and it got all the way to the track, just about, and it stopped. And I tried to manually move it over, and it stopped. And I tried to manually move it over, and I'm, I was getting frustrated. And I marched my, my butt all the way to the end of the, the field. When I mapped it, I never saw this, this power line in St. Gabriel. And thank God for the obstacle avoidance, because I would have crashed it straight into that, that power line. But, uh, you know, they, they talked about it, that safety feature being an airbag and not a seatbelt. But uh, I'm sure glad that these things are a lot smarter than Al Ogeron is. Um, battery time, 10 to 12 minutes max, guys. And I want to show this right here. Um, we learned this uh, myself and Damien Glazier, I worked with quite a bit in the New Roads area. For an efficient use of that battery life, you better not try to ferry it. You better have that aircraft where you want it to go. Because every time that aircraft has to turn and move and such, it's burning battery. And you can burn as much as 20% of your battery unintentionally without ever spraying a drop. So it's better to, to go to the aircraft to refuel and to uh, swap out batteries, in my opinion, when it's dry. When it's wet, it's a whole different situation if you're having to bring that aircraft to Central Park, just know that you're going to uh, be, be burning a lot of battery life. Um, 
Damien was talking about going really big, having a three or four hundred gallon tank of water, a nurse tank, and and, and you know, uh, he said, Al, once it got wet, I, I I became real aware real quick I couldn't pull this kind of thing in in the field uh, to save my battery life. So uh, he said, you know, you, you got to kind of uh, have either two two game plans or, or go on the smaller slide uh, where you can pull it with a side by side or four wheeler. In his opinion. Uh, from an efficiency standpoint. Battery charging. Uh, learned a lot of hard lessons this way. Um, you know, I'd say buy twice as many batteries as they tell you you need, hands down, because the last thing you want that aircraft not to, to do is not to be running when you want it to be spraying. Um, if these things are charging at 120 volts, you're going to wait 30 to 40 minutes to charge a battery. Uh, Damien, uh, tried that and he said Al I was waiting 45 minutes before I could put that aircraft back up he had a little bitty generator he ended up going to a bigger generator I'd say you would need at least a uh, 10,000 watt generator with these DJI's charging at 240 volts with a 50 amp plug uh, it makes a difference that's the only way you can get a rapid charge with these things um, really not sure about the Helio products but it's definitely one of the things that I learned with that aircraft uh, how many acres you can spray for an hour in an hour and that really depends so one of the things that i learned uh is efficiency now when you study for that that aerial applicators test you'll learn you're supposed to spray again uh across the wind not supposed to spray with the wind but from an aircraft efficiency standpoint the longer run you can make the better in terms of saving battery and not burning so we did some work with mike harper where we th flew 2500 feet one way 2,500 feet the other way, we can make two passes like that. Excellent. But if I'm running 300 feet coming back, 300 feet coming back, every time that aircraft has to stop, move over, and, and, and come back on another pass, it's burning battery. Uh, your GPA has a big difference. Your spray width. If you want to spray 9-foot wide versus a 12-foot swath versus an 18-foot swath, all that has implications on, on how many acres you can spray an hour. We, we did uh, eight to 10 acres with my little bitty uh, two and a half gallon T10. Damien uh, said 20 to 22 hours, 20 to 22 acres with his T30 at an 18 foot swath. Now, you know, you heard yesterday up to a 40 foot swath and everything that I've learned, just my experience, dial it down. You're not gonna get that, that swath width uh, and get a good uniform coverage. It just doesn't happen. With my T10, they said, oh, up to 20 feet wide. With the, the T30, they said 30 feet wide. Uh, you just don't have the, the right spray coverage if you do that. Pay close attention to settings. You know, uh, they talked about a three-year-old learning to, to be able to operate these things and, and, and such, and that's absolutely true. It's like using an iPhone. But I was spraying a test, uh, ripening a test with Matt Gravois, and it was on some 615. And after I sprayed my first two replications, I was out of chemical, and I calculated how much I needed and I started thinking so I went back and I clicked one wrong button so my swath width instead of being 12 feet jumped to 24 feet so pay attention to that um, the, these obstacle avoidance uh, if you're trying to fly on the high lines uh, and you have the uh, vertical uh, upward obstacle avoidance on it'll never fly under it you have to turn it off but that horizontal obstacle avoidance, if I would have had that thing turned off, 
it would have flew straight into those power lines in St. Gabriel's, those low energy lines. Uh, this auto terrain is another function that you got to watch. I ran into problems whenever I had any large cane in parts of the field because it, it, it's following that terrain and that you have a dip, the aircraft will go down, but it can't come up quick enough and then it breaks and it just burns battery and you have to manually move it over. It takes several times to do that. So I started, when I had any kind of lodge cane, I set my height 10 feet above what the cane height was. So I was flying 17 or 18 feet and I just set it at, at that's the height I wanted to fly when I was putting out some of these trials. Uh, lesson four, it's a very effective tool. Um, you know, we, we put out glyphosate in the top uh, left-hand picture. Uh, on, on these beans at Iberia Research Station because our sprayer had broke, spray tractor had broke down. It did a great job. The picture on the right hand side of the screen is uh, a field at Laver St. John with Charlie Laver. Snut said Charlie sprayed the rest of that field with his, his uh, big John Deere sprayer. Charlie said, Al, I got so many calls wanting to know what we put out in that little section that you sprayed. And it was this glyphosate at two quarts. Um, one of the things uh, in terms of burn down with glyphosate, the less water you use, the more effective that herbicide is. And that is absolutely opposite with every other herbicide there is. But that's one of the things that Dr. Eric Webster taught me in graduate school. It, it, it acts funny. So uh, that's one reason I think it did better on this nut edge. The other thing is when, when you look at the downward force, you shake up the biomass. Uh, the weed wise and even when you're spraying ripening, you're shaking it up you're getting deposition underneath that leaf and throughout that canopy and they're stomates and it's an easy way for that product to get into that plant uh, so so there's work at Virginia Tech that shows that two gallon work with a drone is more effective than 10 gallon work with a tractor pretty pretty interesting this picture on on the bottom uh, uh, left is from mr. Charles Guidry farm you see a little bit of green here and there that's dove weed where glyphosate doesn't control. But you can see where I didn't spray. You got a lot of other green uh, grasses coming. The final was a, a picture with Brandon Grava where we did some uh, ripener work with him. Uh, we'll show you a couple slides here uh, on, on that, but uh, it was very effective. Initially, when we did our, our first look at can we really use these tools? We put spray sensitive cords in the top, middle, and bottom of the canopy. This was at uh, Jim Harper's after we had the two hurricanes uh, two years ago. And we had deposition even at the bottom of that lodge cane, which was amazing to me with that spray drone. Uh, I didn't know I was giving a ripener talk uh, today until last Sunday, so I had, had these slides in here. Um, just real quickly, as you look at the increase in glyphosate rates, and you look at TRS, it mirrors that rate as we, we jump up. Same thing in 299. Last thing to talk about is service matters. Uh, had an accident the first year with my, my controller. It took seven months to get another controller in. With Damien's uh, T30, we had one set of nozzles that wouldn't turn on. Uh, the person who sold him the drone couldn't help us. We called DJI in California, because that's where you got to call for help. We were told it was going to take three hours before we could talk to anybody. Um, make sure you buy a drone with somebody who can service you. DJI got some guys, I believe, in Arkansas that are farmers who are good at uh, I like, really like Billy's uh, solution that he has. 
um, but be able to get parts and be able to pick up, have a human pick up a phone because we started taking apart Damien's uh, $30,000 drone and I'm, I'm kind of nervous. It was me, Greg Costello and Damien and what happened is they had a, a bent prong and we weren't getting continuity and the nozzle wasn't turning on, but it, it, was, it was definitely uh, nerve wracking. So I just want to thank uh, Randy Price and Damien Glazier for, for helping me out and definitely thank every producer, Miller, uh, and landowner that contributes to the American Sugarcane League for supporting my uh, research efforts. Questions? This drone is a rotary aircraft, but it's what I'm more concerned about is the nozzle orientation they talk about. So yes, the EPA is going to have to uh, revisit some labels. Thank you.